We are in the area, the section of the book where the land is being distributed. And last week we went through chapter 15 where the tribe of Judah received their land. They were the first, and so we are moving on to the second and third tribes today. Joshua chapter 16, we're going to read chapters 16 and 17. It says, And the lot of the children of Joseph fell from Jordan by Jericho unto the water of Jericho on the east, to the wilderness that goeth up from Jericho throughout Mount Bethel, and goeth out from Bethel to Luz, and passeth along unto the borders of Archie to Adaroth, and goeth down westward to the coast of Japhtaledi, unto the coast of Bethhor in the nether, and to Gezer, and the goings out thereof are at the sea. So the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their inheritance. And the border of the children of Ephraim, according to their families, was thus. Even the border of their inheritance on the east side was Adaroth-Adar unto Bethhor in the upper. And the border went out toward the sea to Michmethah on the north side. And the border went about eastward unto Tanath-Shiloh and passeth by it on the east to Janahah. And went down from Janahah to Adaroth and to Nareth and came to Jericho and went out at Jordan. And the border went from Tapua westward unto the river Cana, and the goings out thereof were at the sea. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim. And the separate cities for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. And they drove not out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites unto this day and serve under tribute. There was also a lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph, to wit, for Maker, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war, therefore he had Gilead and Bashan. There was also a lot for the rest of the children of Manasseh by their families, for the children of Abiazer, and for the children of Helek, and for the children of Asriel, and for the children of Shechem, and for the children of Hefer, and for the children of Shemida. These were the male children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, by their families. But Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, had no sons but daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mela, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terzah. And they came near before Eleazar the priest and before Joshua the son of Nun and before the princes, saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brethren. Therefore, according to the commandment of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brethren of their father. And there fell ten portions to Manasseh beside the land of Gilead and Bashan, which were on the other side Jordan. Because the daughters of Manasseh had an inheritance among his sons, and the rest of Manasseh's sons had the land of Gilead. And the coast of Manasseh was from Asher to Michmethah that lieth before Shechem, and the border went along on the right hand unto the inhabitants of Antipua. Now Manasseh had the land of Tapua, but Tapua on the border of Manasseh belonged to the children of Ephraim. And the coast descended unto the river Cana, southward of the river. These cities of Ephraim are among the cities of Manasseh. The coast of Manasseh also was on the north side of the river, and the outgoings of it were at the sea. Southward it was Ephraim's, and northward it was Manasseh's, and the sea is his border. And they met together in Asher on the north, and in Issachar on the east. And Manasseh had an Issachar and an Asher, Bethshean, and her towns, and Ablim and her towns, and, in, and the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, and the inhabitants of Endor and her towns, 
and the inhabitants of Tanakh and her towns, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns, even three countries. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. Yet it came to pass when the children of Israel were waxen strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute, but did not utterly drive them out. And the children of Joseph spake unto Joshua, saying, Why hast thou given me but one lot and one portion to inherit, seeing I am a great people, for as much as the Lord hath blessed me hitherto? And Joshua answered them, If thou be a great people, then get thee up to the wood country, and cut down for thyself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the giants, if Mount Ephraim be too narrow for thee. And the children of Joseph said, The hill is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites that dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both they who are of Bethshean and her towns, and they who are of the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spake unto the house of Joseph, even to Ephraim and to Manasseh, saying, Thou art a great people, and hast great power. Thou shalt not have one lot only, but the mountain shall be thine, for it is a wood, and thou shalt cut it down, and the outgoings of it shall be for thine. For thou shalt drive out the inhabitants, though they have iron chariots, and though they be strong. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your goodness to us and for the opportunity to come and to study your word. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, reveal to us the power of your word and that we would uh, trust it fully. And uh, we ask your blessing on this time in Jesus name. Amen. Well, in chapter 16, we have the inheritance being given to the second tribe, the really the beginning of the the second and third tribes, um, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph. And Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. There, There is no dispute about that. That's not uh, anything that we have to dump, jump to the conclusion of. The Bible tells us in Genesis 37.3 that Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And Joseph was also the, the son of Jacob's favorite wife, the oldest son of his favorite wife. Um, as you read through the book of Genesis, you are very much, we are made very much aware of the favoritism that caused a lot of turmoil and hardship in the families of the, of the, the patriarchs. And, um, Jacob and Esau were bitter enemies for a couple of decades. Um, we are told that uh, Esau was Isaac's favorite and uh, Jacob was Rebekah's favorite. And, um, you know, it, it appears that Jacob really didn't learn a whole lot from that as he then exhibited favoritism towards Joseph in many ways. I certainly cannot really relate to that. Um, I have one wife. I didn't have four like Jacob. I, my children are all from the same parents. And I cannot certainly, I, I cannot imagine wh- how I would love one of my children more than the others. Um, that's a foreign concept to me. I cannot comprehend that. But nevertheless, you know, this caused a lot of strife and turmoil within these families. And, you know, some of the 
criticism of Joseph is probably somewhat justified. We are told that his brothers hated him because of that favoritism. Genesis 37, 4 and 5, his brethren hated him when they saw that their father loved him more than them and made him a coat of many colors. And then we are told later that Joseph was sent to check on his brethren when he was 17 years old and they were feeding the flock. And many have raised the question, why wasn't Joseph feeding the flock? And, you know, maybe Joseph was being given preferential treatment. Maybe he was not being given very many responsibilities. Um, you know, again, it's a little bit of speculation and conjecture, but as you read the story, you, you seem to come to the conclusion that there was some justification on his brother's part of thinking that, uh, you know, there was really a lot of favoritism being shown and, and it wasn't necessarily justified. Nevertheless, when we get to this portion of the book of Joshua where the land is being distributed, there's no doubt that Joseph is being given preferential treatment, and that's of the Lord. Um, He enjoyed a special privilege as a result of his God-given ability to interpret dreams. Uh, We are told in Genesis 39, verse 9, that Joseph refused to sin against the Lord as a result of the enticement of Potiphar's wife, and he is certainly commended and honorable for that. And we are told in Genesis 49:26 and Deuteronomy 33:16 that both Jacob and Moses both stated that Joseph's inheritance would be extra special and superior to that of his brethren because he spent 20 years separated from his brothers. So when we get to the book of Joshua, it's not not surprising that you know he is being given the the second lot, and only only Judah who was the the one who had been given the most special blessing by Jacob in Genesis 48 and would be the tribe that the Messiah would come from. He was the one that was given the best lot. Joseph also received the double blessing from Jacob because of his two sons. As, as we know, as, as we're looking here in chapter 16 and 17, Ephraim and Manasseh were, they were to take the place of two tribes. You know, the, the tribe of Levi was was given a, a different type of inheritance, and so uh, so that there would still be 12 tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh are substituted for Joseph. And in Genesis chapter 48, verse 5, Jacob adopted Joseph's two sons as his own, and he said they were taking the place of Reuben and Simeon. And we're well aware of that story, that Jacob had decided that, that the... Uh, the younger one was going to receive the, the best blessing, and that being Ephraim, and Manasseh was the older one. And, uh, you know, again, there's a lot of speculation as to why that was the case, um, you know, why all this favoritism was being shown both to, to Joseph and then now to Ephraim, who was the, the second-born son. Some theorized that it's because Jacob was not the firstborn, you know, Esau was, and so therefore he gave preferential treatment to Ephraim because he wasn't the firstborn either, and Rachel wasn't the firstborn, she was the, you know, the, the little sister to Leah, but I would, I would guess that that's probably all a lot of speculation. We, we don't know exactly what the reasons were for favoring these people, favoring these children, but nevertheless, it did cause a lot of grief and a lot of heartache, and we do see after a couple of decades of, of separation, uh, Jacob and Esau were eventually able to, you know, make up to some extent. 
In verses 2 through 3 in chapter 16, we see that the land extends all the way from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. And that's very closely uh, resembling the, the description of the land that Judah was given. You, you, you recall that Judah was given land that extended all the way from basically the, the length of the Dead Sea all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea. And now uh, Ephraim is being given the land that is north of that. So it's from the Jordan River all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. The, the whole country, um, if you're familiar, if you've read through your Bible and you, you, you read through the Old Testament, you know that later on, uh, after, the, the, uh, after Solomon's son Jeroboam divides the kingdom, you know that the, the, two, the southern portion of the, of the promised land essentially becomes known as Canaan, and then the, the northern portion becomes known as the land of Israel, which is the ten northern tribes. But as you read further on into your Old Testament, particularly through the minor prophets, you know that many times that northern kingdom is also referred to as Ephraim, not just Israel. So Ephraim really did occupy a, a pretty prominent role in the, the history of the nation of Israel. And we see in verse number 10 a common criticism that we, we've already seen throughout the book. We see it, we saw it in verse 63 of chapter 15. We're going to see it in subsequent chapters, and that is a black mark is put upon this tribe for not driving out the Canaanites. It says in verse 10, they drove not out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites unto this day and serve under tribute. And we know that this, if you read on into the book of Judges, this proved disastrous for them. They ended up getting involved in a lot of idolatry that they were enticed to get involved with because of these people that were left to remain that, that shouldn't have been. Also, the statement there that they, they eventually put them under tribute, Calvin believes that, that as we see this statement repeated throughout the book of Joshua, this is an indication of their greed and their, and, and their uh, you know, they, they were wanting slaves. They were wanting servants instead of being uh, willing to, to do all of the work themselves. That was some of the motivation that they, that they used to justify their failure to obey God and drive these people out. They saw the advantage that they could use to put them to work. And, you know, a lot of these situations that we see in these chapters are given to us because they are in in sharp contrast to the faithfulness that we saw of Caleb in chapter 14. You know, we see that Caleb was was faithful and and it was his intention to be honorable to the Lord and to be obedient to the Lord and but not not everyone is following his example. And you know, lest we be too critical, um you know, now, I'm sure there's an exception clause for all of us. Um, you know, every one of us, when we stand before the Lord someday, none of us are going to receive a glowing report that we did everything perfect and that we followed the Lord wholeheartedly and fully and never failed and, you know, didn't have any shortcomings or failures. We're going to have a, a note like this in, in verse 10 here. We know when we read the letters to the, to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, you know, many of them are given commendation, but Nevertheless, there's something negative that is stated about them also. Chapter 17 is where we move from the, the lot of Ephraim to the lot of Manasseh. We see that it's noted that Manasseh is the, the second, uh, you know, he's the, it's made note of that he's the firstborn of Joseph, even though he's receiving his inheritance 
after Ephraim. And again, that was because of the blessing. You recall in the book of Genesis where Jacob had switched his hands much to the dismay of Joseph when he pronounced the blessings on them. And so this is the result of that. And, in, and also in verse 1, the end of the verse says, because, says, Maker the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war, therefore he had Gilead and Bashan. And that's another reference to the land that had already been given to Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan River. You remember, we're, we're consistently throughout the book of Joshua uh, referring to the 12 tribes in, in two Sections. We're referring to the two and a half tribes that received the land on the east side of the river and the nine and a half that received the land on the west side. And this statement here, because he was a man of war, that is actually a compliment. That's nothing derogatory being stated about him. The idea there is that uh, because of his ambition and his willingness to trust the Lord and to not be intimidated by those that had occupied the land, he had already taken that land and was happy to receive that land on the east side of the river. And so, therefore, he's living up to his agreement, uh, which we had you know, seen stated very clearly in Joshua chapter 1. He wasn't asking for anything more. They had already been given their inheritance. Verse number 2, the rest of Manasseh's sons were given an inheritance on the west side of the Jordan River. And then, and then we get to verse number 3 where it says that Heper had no sons but daughters. And like Caleb... They come to remind Joshua of the promise the Lord made to them through Moses. It's, it's very similar to what Caleb had been doing. They come to claim their inheritance. It had been promised many, many years earlier, and, and they haven't forgotten the promise. Uh, you know, like, like I think I said a week or two ago, God doesn't want us to forget about the promise. We have a lot of promises that we can look forward to. And... God wants us to look forward to those promises. He wants us to claim our inheritance. Pastor had just mentioned, I think a week or two ago, that he's planning on uh, preaching through the book of Ephesians coming up in the near future, and I'm looking forward to that. It has a lot to say about our spiritual inheritance, and we should be looking forward to that. We should be, we should have the, the attitude and the mindset of these daughters of Zelophehad that we should uh, we should want to claim what God has promised to us. We should hold God to his word. Verse number four says they come near to Eleazar the high priest. They remind Joshua of the promise the Lord made to them. Again, just like with Caleb, I don't know that a reminder was necessarily needed, but, but they want to make sure that, uh, you know, before the, the final borders are set in stone, they want to make sure that they get what was, what was promised to them. Turn back to Numbers chapter 27, and we'll take a little closer look at this incident where they came to Moses and made this request. Numbers chapter 27. Numbers chapter 27, verse 1. Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Heper, the son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these are the names of his daughter, Mela, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the princes and all the congregation by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, our father died in the wilderness, and he was not in the company of them that gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. 
He died in his own sin and had no sons. What they're saying there is clearly our father was a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. But they're saying he wasn't a leader in the rebellion. He wasn't one of the main instigators in why God became so angry and decided that that generation was going to die in the wilderness. That's the point that they're making. They're not claiming that their dad was perfect, of course. But they're saying he wasn't he wasn't a leader in the rebellion. His name is not going down in history uh, like the name of Korah or Achan that we've seen in the book of Joshua, where clearly about the only thing notable about those men is their sinfulness. Verse number four, why should the name of our father be done away from among his family because he hath no son? Give us, therefore, a possession among the brethren of our father. They state that it is their father's name that they are particularly interested in. Um, it's, it's their, their main argument isn't necessarily the land. It's the name of their father. It's the, the inheritance. And I think there's, there's evidence to support that. Um, they would have had... They, you know, they would have, they could have married, and I'm sure did marry, and they would have had, uh, you know, they would have been taken care of by their husbands and their brothers and their fathers and you know other men in their lives. But they are asking for this so that their, you know, so that the name of their fathers, you know, that his name wouldn't die because he didn't have any sons. Verse number five, and Moses brought their cause before the Lord, and Moses did that quite a bit. We saw that when we looked at. Uh, when the two and a half tribes came to Moses and asked him for land on the east side of the river. Moses was at first very upset with them, but ultimately said, well, let's, let's go to the Lord about this. And that's the right thing to do. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, the daughters of Zelophehad speak right. God says they've got a legitimate concern. Thou shalt surely give them a possession of an inheritance among their father's brethren, and thou shalt cause the inheritance of their father to pass unto them. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a man die and have no son, then ye shall cause his inheritance to pass unto his daughter. And if he have no daughter, then ye shall give him his inheritance unto his brethren. And if he have no brethren, then ye shall give his inheritance unto his father's brethren. And if his father have no brethren, then ye shall give his inheritance unto his kinmen that is next to him of his family. And he shall possess it, and it shall be unto the children of Israel a statute of judgment, as the Lord commanded Moses." So they're really bringing to light something that needed to be brought to light, that there needed to be a provision made for situations like this, where there was no son surviving of the father. Now, you can turn back to Joshua. One of the, Joshua chapter 17, one of the additional explanations given about this request is given in Numbers chapter 36, where Somebody had raised the, the then had raised the concern. Well, if we give them land, but then they marry outside of the tribe that they are originally from, that land won't actually remain within the tribe. So Moses had passed an additional requirement stating that these five ladies were going to have to marry somebody within their own tribe, and then that would guarantee that the land stayed within their tribe. So again, it wasn't wrong for them to raise questions. The, the fact that they're raising questions allows these. Questions to be clarified. Probably others had had the same type of questions in the same dilemma. Calvin states that the the daughters of Zelophehad had exhibited great faith in knowing that the land would be conquered. And that makes sense. You know, when they originally went to Moses and made the request, they were a long ways from the promised land at that time. And if they didn't believe they were ever going to get to the promised land, well, then there wouldn't have been any reason to make the request. So, 
that, that seems logical, that they did exhibit great faith in believing that God was going to keep his word. And now they're coming many years later and reminding Joshua, hey, we expect God to keep his word. They come to Eliezer, the high priest. Hebrews 4 tells us that we have a high priest, Jesus, and we are to go boldly to God with our requests. And Jesus, our high priest, will intercede on our behalf and see that God meets those requests, that he will give us the grace and mercy that we, that we desire. We also know that Joshua would, would not have disobeyed the Lord in this. He, he certainly was aware of these uh, proclamations that Moses had made through the Lord. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, we don't need to turn there, but that is the story of the persistent widow who goes to the judge and asks for his ruling on her behalf. And you recall the story is, is that the judge was was, you know, dragging his feet and not making a decision. And she kept pestering him and she wouldn't give up. And ultimately he ended up, uh, you know, deciding in her favor. And then Jesus uses that to to teach us that our persistence in prayer uh, is, is what God desires. God doesn't want us to faint. He doesn't want us to lose heart. He doesn't want us to give up. He wants us to pursue that. When my wife and I were first married... We, we lived in an apartment, and then after we had been married a while, we decided that we were going to buy our first house. And, you know, like a standard arrangement for an apartment, we had to put down a deposit, which is usually a month's rent. And, you know, we had an agreement with the landlord, again, just a standard agreement that, of course, if you don't destroy the place, you know, you'll get your deposit back when you eventually move out. So after we had moved out, I contacted the landlord and I said, you know, I'd like my deposit back. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and then I would wait. No month goes by and I never received it. And I called him again and another month went by. And, you know, this went on for several months. And I called him and I said, you know, our agreement was, was that as long as we didn't destroy the place, you know, that we were supposed to get that deposit back. And. I can assure you that we left the place in better condition than we found it. We painted, repainted several rooms and fixed some things. And, you know, he didn't have any, you know, any, you know, there was no legitimate reason for him to keep the deposit. But, you know, I'm sure like a lot of people, he just thought, you know, if he put us up long enough that we would just go away and we wouldn't pursue the matter. Well, after a couple of months of that, I was I was getting a little bit impatient and at that time, I happened to work at FDR, and I was working the graveyard shift. So I called him one night at 3 o'clock in the morning, and his wife answered the phone, and I said, I'm going to call you every night at 3 o'clock in the morning till I get, till I get my deposit. <laughs> and the next day, the check was in the mailbox, and there wasn't even a stamp on the envelope. <laughs> now, that's exactly what's going on here with these daughters of Zalapha had. I mean... They're not, they're not asking for something that they're not entitled to. God had promised that to them through Moses. And they're, they're, they're just coming to Joshua and saying, hey, I just want what's supposed to be mine. And that's, that's all I was doing when I wanted my deposit back. There is a big difference between being meek and submissive and allowing yourself to be treated like a doormat. And, you know, these ladies are to be commended. I mean, they were not going to allow that. Verse number five says, and then, then fell, and there fell ten portions to Manasseh 
beside the land of Gilead and Bashan, which were on the other side, Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh had an inheritance among his sons, and the rest of Manasseh's sons had the land of Gilead. Now, there were five other sons besides Hefer, and so ten portions were given. I don't know that we can necessarily assume that the portions that were given to the daughters were the same size. I don't know that that's necessarily implied in the text. But nevertheless, they were given, you know, they were given a, a, a you know, given an inheritance that they had requested. Galatians 3.28, you don't need to turn there, but it tells us that Paul is reminding us that salvation is available to all, the rich and the poor, bond and free, male and female. And we see that consistently throughout God's Word, that, that women are not given an inferior position. They're not treated you know, unfairly. God has a, a mind for them. He has a, you know, we certainly, if, you, if you've read through the New Testament and you read Paul's letters, you certainly see in the ministry of Paul his great appreciation for a lot of the women in the churches that he had started and that he was trying to encourage. And of course, you know, we have a, a history in our nation of, of, you know, which actually has probably uh, been the case in just about every nation where you have, you know, just less than 100 years ago, women were not allowed to vote in our country. And, you know, if, if, you, if you do a lot of reading about that, you know, there are a lot of reasons. It's not as simple as a lot of people want to make it seem. A lot of people had a different agenda as, as to, you know, the reasons either that they wanted women to be able to vote or they didn't want women to be able to vote. But a lot of people attribute very uh, inaccurate motives to the, you know, the founding fathers, uh, you know, when, when they are giving, when they are stating the reasons now as to why women weren't able to vote. And the idea was never to suppress women. It was never to oppress them. It was never to, it was the, the idea originally was, was that they didn't need to vote because it was assumed that there was a man that was voting and taking care of them and that their vote really fell under his headship, whether that was their, whether that was their husband or whether that was their father, if they were still living at, at home or whether that was their brother. The idea originally was, was that, you know, there was a man, so they were, they were being represented down in the 20th century, you know, when all of this came to a head and women were finally given the right to vote. There were so many hidden agendas, you know. Some people wanted women to be able to vote so that they could, they, they, they assumed that they would then outlaw polygamy. Well, in, in the state of Utah, it had the exact opposite effect. Women voted overwhelmingly to approve polygamy. Then in the, the other states, they wanted women to be able to vote because they assumed that they would uh, vote against prohibition, and so of course the the alcohol industry was against the women being able to vote. So there was a lot of different things going on, and it's not nearly as simple as a lot of people want to make it out to be. They want to make it out to be that, you know, th- these women were just being oppressed by evil men. It, it's of course it's always much more complex than that. Anybody have any comments before we before we go on? I don't want to shut you out. Verse number seven, we have the description then of the land of Manasseh. And again, the, the land that was given on the east side of the river was given to the, the, the first half of the tribe of Manasseh. And now we're, we're, we're seeing land given to the, the other half of the tribe of Manasseh on the west side. And they are, they are adjoining other than the fact that the, the river separates them. The, the borders that are described here are, are somewhat ambiguous and, 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 and very confusing. And, and 
I think in verses 8, 9, and 10, it almost appears as though that's intentional. I think the idea here is that, that Ephraim and Manasseh, being brothers and being so close to one another, and essentially, in, in some ways, being of the same tribe of Joseph, they were kind of expected to share some of these borders. They were given cities that they were both essentially responsible for. So I, I don't know that it's necessarily worthwhile for us to try to uh, you know, make a, a, a clear distinction between the borders of Ephraim and Manasseh. And then down in verse number 12, again, now we're, we're right back to where we were at the end of chapter 16. We see that, that they could not drive out the Canaanites. It says, but the, the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities. And, you know, again, a, a specific reason isn't given as to why they couldn't drive them out. I think by this time, it's, it's kind of implied. They just wouldn't. They refused to be obedient to the Lord. The, the Israelites, you know, we've looked at several verses in the past weeks, and, and the, the, the Israelites, you know, they, they just they feared the Canaanites more than they feared God. You know, as I was listening to the radio this week, it's, it's kind of frustrating sometimes. I was listening to some of the, the commentators on the radio, and they were... I think genuinely, you know, perplexed, they were lamenting the fact that, that, you know, that there are any religious people in our country that are still uh, opposed to the, you know, the, the gay rights movement, you know. And they were asking the question, you know, well, what, are, what are they afraid of? What, what, what do they fear? And they are clueless. They don't have a clue what we fear. We're not homophobic. We don't fear the homosexuals. We fear the Lord. We fear what's becoming of our country. And they, they rightfully were stating they don't get that. Of course, they're unbelievers. They don't understand the fear of the Lord. That is the thing that motivates us. We don't want to put our stamp of approval on something that God clearly has said is, you know, wicked and evil. Um, and, they love to trot out the polls. You know, you can't hardly listen to the news recently without a poll being, in a, you know, the vast majority of Americans now approve of homosexuality. I don't doubt that. And even if that isn't the case, I don't doubt that surely that will be the case. That doesn't dictate what we believe. The Bible dictates what we believe. We don't care if the latest poll says that 99% of Americans approve of homosexuality. We either are going to stand on the authority of the Bible or we're not. And one of the reasons that a lot of people state as to why so many of these tribes are failing to drive out the Canaanites is because they are succumbing to the attitude, well, everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is taking the Canaanites and making them their slaves. That looks like a pretty good idea. Why don't we do that? Other than the fact that we, as we saw through the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, God clearly forbid such a thing. God said they were supposed to drive out the Canaanites. God said they were supposed to destroy the Canaanites. But things look a lot more appealing, and it's a lot easier to succumb to those things when everybody else is doing it. And that's what we see here, one tribe after another. They're not driving out the Canaanites, and you have to wonder, is that because, well, they look at their brothers, they look at the other tribes, well, they're not doing it either. Somehow the 
somehow being disobedient to the Lord becomes easier as if everybody else is doing it. That seems to be, you know, and that's a trap we can all fall into. I mean, we, we just do. We look at we look around and, you know, that's our tendency. Well, you know, everybody else is doing it. Maybe maybe I maybe I've misunderstood. Maybe the Bible really doesn't teach that. Maybe the Bible maybe I've misunderstood the Bible. Maybe I really I'm not reading it clearly. Now, that's not what God wants from us. Verse number 14, 14 through 18, this is the, it says, And the children of Joseph spake unto Joshua. Now, it says the children of Joseph because the, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh are coming as one, which they are not, but they feel that it bolsters their case. Why hast thou given me but one lot and one portion to inherit, seeing that I am a great people, for as much as the Lord has blessed me hitherto? They're complaining about their inheritance. You've given me too small of a lot, Joshua. You haven't given us enough. They may be thinking that Joshua will be more inclined to give them more because he's from the tribe of Ephraim. You know, they may be thinking he's one of us. And so we, we, we've got a better chance of obtaining a larger inheritance. That's not happening. Joshua's impartial. That's, that's an example of a great public servant. He's got to be able to set, you know, his own, the fact that he's a, a member of one of these tribes, he's got to be able to set that aside. And I think as we look through these verses, he clearly does that. So they're they're wrong if that's what they're thinking. That Joshua is going to be more inclined to sympathize with them because he's one of them. Verse 15, And Joshua answered them, If thou be a great people, then get thee up to the wood country and cut down for thyself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the giants, if Mount Ephraim be too narrow for thee. They're viewing their land in terms of what is already cleared, what is already ready to be plowed. They're, they're just looking for the easy route, the shortcut. And Joshua kind of turns their argument against them. He says, if you're so great a people, then why don't you clear that forest? If, you know, if, if there aren't enough plains and, and, you, and you're so great a people, why don't, you, why don't you take matters into your own hands and clear the forest? But notice their objections in verse number 16. Children of Joseph said, The hill is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites that dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both they who are of Bethshean and her towns, and they who are of the valley of Jezreel. Now, we don't need to turn back to all the verses. We've been over them numerous times. Deuteronomy 21, 20 verse 1, God said He would be with them. He said, Don't fear the Canaanites. He said, I will take care of the Canaanites. I will drive them out. So their argument to Joshua is, we don't want to be obedient to the Lord. That's the reason that we want more land. We don't want to be obedient to the Lord and drive out the Canaanites and do what God told us to do. I mean, that's what a lot of, people, that's what a lot of us do sometimes when we're trying to justify our behavior. We're being disobedient to the Lord. Verse number 17, Joshua's not fooled. 
Joshua spake unto the house of Joseph, even to Ephraim and to Manasseh, saying, Thou art a great people and hast great power. Thou shalt not have one lot only. Joshua's argument there is, you'll have more land. That's what that last phrase means. Thou shalt not have one lot only. You'll have more than one lot if you will go ahead and clear that for us. Look at verse 18. But the mountain shall be for thine, for it is a wood, and thou shalt cut it down, and the outgoings of it shall be thine. For thou shalt drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots, and though they be strong. He says, you don't have a valid argument. And this passage is made, unfortunately, more difficult to understand because the King James Bible inconsistently translates the same Hebrew word to different words. That's led a lot of people astray. Look at verse 16. It says, And the children of Joseph said, The hill is not enough for us. But notice in verse 18, Joshua says, But the mountain shall be thine. People have erroneously jumped to the conclusion that what Joshua was doing there, he's saying, Okay, I understand the hill isn't enough for you, so I will give you the mountain. I will give you something that is superior to a hill. That's the same word. That's the same Hebrew word that we've seen consistently, inconsistently, I should say, throughout the book of Joshua. The same Hebrew word is sometimes translated hill, it's sometimes translated mountain. That has led people to conclude that Joshua caved, that he gave them more land, that he says, okay, I'll give you the mountain because the hill is enough. Joshua didn't say that at all. He says, the hill is what you get. The hill was your inheritance. You need, look at verse 18, you need to cut down the wood. You need to drive out the Canaanites, even though they have iron chariots and even though they're strong, you need to take what you've been given. Dr. McGee on this passage says, everybody wants something for nothing. People don't want to expend any blood, sweat, or tears. They're always looking for a shortcut. So many poor, lazy people complain about what they have and want more, and they haven't made the most of what God has already given them. That's what we see in the New Testament. God asks us to prove that we can be faithful with little before we are given a lot. Matthew 25:41, the parable of the talents. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. And they're, but yet they're, they're not satisfied. They're, they're looking for a, a way to circumvent the clear commands of the Lord. They, they just don't want to be obedient. Dale Ralph Davis puts it like this, we will see little of God's power until we venture out into the way of obedience. Because that's, that's, that's how he views what's going on here with these two tribes. They are refusing to be obedient to the Lord according to the clear commandments that he has given. And so, uh, you know, the responsibility is now on them. You know, the, the responsibility is not on Joshua or the Lord to give them more land. It's for them to be obedient and take control of the land that God has already given them. All right, we're going to stop there. Does anybody have any, anything they want to contribute or any, any comments? Steve. Oh, I no doubt. <laughs> we get tired.